Well, greetings from Madison. It's so good to be here with you again. And uh, I said this last time I was here, but one of the joys of serving in Madison is that many of our key leaders at the Vine Church are uh, previously discipled by Jerry and Sue. And so it's a real a blessing to have such a strong connection with you as a community of faith. I, uh, one of the things that I, or a few of the things I really love about the Bridge Church are this. Your mission states that you want to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Jesus. And then your vision goes on to express that you want to be a multi-generational church that spearheads a church-planting movement in western Wisconsin. Now, both of these statements suggest that you are a people who want to center your lives around the purpose and work of Jesus, that, that you've been so changed and transformed that you can't keep it in, that in an, in, in an individual and in a communal way, you want to see the message of the good news of Jesus Christ spread. Now today, what we're going to look at in the Bible is we're going to look at a man whose life was centered on that same conviction. Some have called this man the most Jesus-centered example in all of Scripture. And his life could be summarized with these three words, not I, him, not I, him. And so who is this man? This man is John the Baptist. He's a cousin of Jesus who preceded Christ. And he, his entire purpose in life was to prepare the way for the Lord. His calling was not to have a family. His calling was not to build this great career. Not to make a name for himself in any way. His entire purpose in life was to point people to someone else. Namely, Jesus. And so I want to invite you to turn now to John 1, either in your smart Bible or if you have your other Bible with you too, that'd be great. And uh, you can just keep it open today because we're just going to really dig deep here in John 1, verses 19 through 37. Now this account, it begins where Jewish leaders send some priests and Levites to John the Baptist because they want to figure out what's this guy all about. Why are so many people following this man? And so follow along with me. I'm going to go ahead and actually just read this entire little section of Scripture. John 1, 19 through 37. Now this was John's testimony. When the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of 
whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following. And I'll I'll just continue there. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, word uh, from the Lord. This is your word to us. And I pray that today as we engage with it, you'd help us to see, hear, and understand how it is that you're uniquely wiring us and calling us and empowering us to be part of this tremendous vision of of living a Jesus-centered life and then living out the implications of that in all that we say and do, both individually and as a people. So speak to us in that way we pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you ever noticed that, that uh, we tend to look at people and, and see how they behave and then make assumptions about their identity based upon that behavior? Okay, think about this. Like the loud, screaming kid at the grocery checkout line who won't take no for an answer when it comes to that candy. What do we think? Well, that kid must not get disciplined very much, right? He needs a spanking or whatever. Or, or think about that, that, that guy or that gal you know who they're always talking about themselves. You know what I mean? You're in a conversation, and for some reason, it always keeps coming back to things that they've done. What do we think about that? We think, well, man, that person must be really insecure. They just have to keep talking about themselves. Now, now though we sometimes get those judgments wrong... The truth is that behavior often reveals or at least hints to truths about our identity. Now, I bring this up because we're going to see in John the Baptist that the inverse of this principle is always also true. Namely, that when someone, what someone believes about themselves, it has a great impact on how they behave. It changes how they live and the, the things that they do. And what we'll see here is that because John the Baptist understood who he was, it led him to behave in a certain way. Now we see in the opening verses that the first thing that John the Baptist knew was who he was not and who he was. Let's start at verse 20. When he was first questioned by the Jews, quote, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. So the first thing that he knew was he was not the Christ, which means I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the Messiah. 
Now, if you know the Bible very well, you know that at this time in Jewish history, they'd undergone hundreds of years of oppression. And they ached for this prophesied Savior to come and to free them from their sufferings. And so John the Baptist, he was making very clear, hey, I am not that guy. Now, the next thing that John knew is that he was not Elijah or a prophet. Look in verse 21. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, the Jews' question, it comes from Malachi 4, 5, where the prophet Malachi wrote that before Israel would be delivered, God would send an Elijah, kind of a symbolic reincarnation of this significant prophet who'd lived centuries earlier. And to this question... And the one about being a prophet, John answered no. Now, it's worth pointing out that later, Jesus would actually identify John the Baptist as this promised Elijah. So clearly, uh, John the Baptist uh, underestimated his role. But we'll cut him some slack in that, I think. Um, Now, though he answered no to the previous questions, there was one thing, though, that John the Baptist clearly knew about his identity and calling, and that was that he was the voice crying out in the wilderness. Look at verse 22. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, the situation was this. This delegation had come with a job. They could not leave empty-handed. They had to get something to tell the Jewish leaders. So they pressed in. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And so in his answer, John quotes the prophet Isaiah from hundreds of years before, saying, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, in the context where this verse was previously delivered, Isaiah, he was calling out for a leveling of a road system that would accommodate the return of the people of Israel who were exiled. It was a way of bringing them back to the promised land of God. So John was taking a familiar statement to the Jews to clarify who he was. It was like saying, my purpose in life is to roll out the red carpet. It's to blow the trumpets. It's to make the way for another who is coming after me. Now, due to the Jews' expectation of a coming Messiah, I think it's safe to say that they understood that John the Baptist was saying, he is going to follow me. That that he was the one who was preparing the way for the Christ. So, bottom line, we can conclude... As we look at this section, that John the Baptist knew some very important things about his identity. Now, as we begin thinking about this reality, and as we observe John and and begin to translate that into our own lives, I want you to repeat these words after me I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Now, this may seem like a very obvious statement uh, to all of you here, but I would argue that this truth, this, the real significance of that statement is really one of the hardest lessons that we have to learn in life. 
Let me give you an example. My wife and I, Carrie, we have five children, okay, the oldest of which is 20, the youngest, 13. And uh, I, throughout all these years of, of raising kids in Christian community, I've noticed that it can be kind of a, a strange environment in this way. For those of us who are Christian parents, we, we want our kids to turn out well, don't we? We want them to be good Christians. And so what do we do? We read books. We, we make educational choices based on our desire to see them follow him. When I was a young parent, I remember taking a class called Growing Kids God's Way. Man, I had it all figured out. And then what happened? Well, we actually did the work of parenting, and we learned a couple things. That no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, we'll never be perfect parents. Okay, We're desperately flawed. And two, we learned that our kids are also sinners and desperately flawed. They will disappoint us. You know, we did our best, and we continue to do our best to try and glorify God in how we parent. But now more than ever, as we send kids out into adulthood, we're learning these words, I am not the Christ. At the end of the day, we do our best effort, but only God changes hearts. I know a pastor's wife who, in effort to learn this lesson, she was very controlling and, and almost so anxious about her kids that, that she recognized God was telling her something one day. And so when her kids went off to school, she went around and grieved a symbolic funeral for each of her children. What she was doing in that painful experience was owning the fact that she's not the Christ, that she could not ultimately make her children into what, they wanted, uh, what she wanted them to become. She needed God's help. She understood that she was not the Christ. Now, of course, this principle applies to so many things other than just parenting. Think for a moment of any area in your life where you're attempting to assert control and it hasn't gone so well. Okay, perhaps you're obsessed with finding a spouse. So much so that you're filled with anxiety and it really controls your life. Or perhaps you're struggling with an, an eating disorder. And you think, if only I can control this one part of my life, oh, then and only then will I be acceptable to others. But in your striving, in your seeking control, what's happening? We're hurting ourselves and we're hurting others, aren't we? Whatever the situation, I want you to repeat those words one more time with me. I am not the Christ. I am. Am not the Christ. So the first thing that we learn from John the Baptist is that he knew who he was and he knew who he wasn't. He was not the Christ. The next thing we're going to learn is that he knew who Jesus was. Now, historically speaking, it's important to know that before this scene where John the Baptist, he's an interrogated by these Jews, he'd already had the privilege of baptizing Jesus. And we read about that in verse 32. He talks about that experience. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him. But the one who sent me to baptize with water told me 
The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. So when John was being interrogated in the previous verses that we looked at, he'd already had his socks blown off, or I should should say sandals blown off, okay, by the experience of baptizing Jesus and hearing the voice of God, put your mind there for a moment, shaking the heavens, saying that this is the Son of God. This is the chosen Messiah. Not only that, but he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove, confirming that this God-man is the one who baptizes others, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. So with with that in mind, we can now consider John's words in verses 26 and 27, where he explains that Jesus alone is the one worthy of our reverence. Okay, Look at 26. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, back in that day, you know, people didn't have Nike, all right? They they walked in sandals everywhere they went. And so on these dirty, dusty roads, their feet at the end of the day were caked with dirt. They were calloused by the rocks. And so cleaning of the feet and the feet themselves in general were considered detestable and dirty. And so it was the lowest of servants who would have the responsibility of washing the feet of their master. So when John says, I'm not even worthy enough to untie his sandals, he is making a massively extreme statement. It's like me saying to you, I'm not even worthy to take out your trash. Okay, it's an extreme statement that magnifies the greatness of another. And that was John's point, wasn't it? So John knew of Jesus' greatness. He knew that he was worthy of great reverence. But even more specifically, he knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, you may not know what he's describing there. What's all this about Jesus being a lamb? Well, in Israel's history, thousands of years before, the Israelites, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. And in a final act of God's power to free them, a spirit of death came to kill every firstborn son in the land. But the Israelites, they were instructed that if they slaughtered a lamb and painted its blood on the doorpost, that their sons would be saved. So when John referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he was borrowing an understanding from Israel's history, saying that the blood of the Lamb that saved in the past is now being embodied in this Jesus. This was a huge statement, a statement that somehow, and John didn't fully understand how, but we know now that somehow Jesus' blood 
would become the means by which all sin would be crushed. That all who trust in Jesus through the blood that he would one day shed upon the cross that they would be forgiven from the power of sin and death. And so John recognized this. He knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God. But there's one other thing he recognized as well. He recognized that Jesus was the ultimate authority. He was the king of kings. Look at verse 30. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So John the Baptist is is affirming an unbelievable statement about Jesus that you'd have to go back to the very beginning of John to see, and it's this. In John 1, 1 through 3, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so John was pointing to Jesus, saying that he was in the beginning. He preceded him. And I think he's making a statement about the deity of Christ. In other words, this guy who's coming, he is God. He is the ultimate authority over all things. Again, John's saying, I'm nothing compared to the one who follows me. Now, last year, my daughter and I, we went to a conference in San Diego. And on the last morning when we were there, we went to Cabrillo State Marine Reserve. Okay, and once we got there, we parked our car and we climbed down uh, these large rocks and made our way uh, to be seated right above these small cliffs surrounded by larger cliffs facing out to the Pacific Ocean. And what we did is we, we sat down as the, as the water was breaking against the rocks. And we opened our Bibles and we looked at the words in Psalm 19, which read, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. And night after night they display knowledge. Now I don't know if you've had an experience like that, but for us it was so powerful because we felt so small and yet around us was this just majestic sense of God's magnitude and his creativity as the creator of such beautiful powerful things and so we continue to read from Psalm 19 it transitioned from talking about how God created the worlds and is declaring his glory through all of creation and it moved into how God then revealed himself in his word with words like the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy making wise the simple and what we experienced then as we went into prayer together was just this overwhelming sense of awe. We were in awe of how God revealed himself to us in creation, of how God revealed himself to us through his word, of how God came and walked among us in Jesus, and we were blown away. Now, I share this experience because 
I believe John the Baptist lived in an even greater measure of awe over who Jesus was. That to him, Jesus alone was worthy of all reverence and fear. That Jesus alone was the Lamb of God who would destroy the power of sin and death. That Jesus alone was God, the creator and sustainer of all things. John is inviting us to this beautiful portrait of Jesus. Inviting us to live in that same sense of awe and wonder. So that leads to a question for you. Are you living in awe and wonder of Jesus? Is he your greatest obsession and treasure? If not, then what things are taking his place? What things are your greatest treasure? Because as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. So John knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. John knew who Jesus was. And finally, in light of those two great realities, it compelled him to action. The action being that in light of these truths, his purpose in life was to make and send out disciples. Look with me at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So the first thing that we need to understand is that to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. So what we see here through this description is that John was actively investing in other disciples. And that ultimately, those disciples, their purpose was not to benefit John. In other words, success to John wasn't, hey, we're friends for life, walking side by side. No. John, John saw that the purpose of these disciples was to glorify Christ, to follow him wherever he would call them. So what can we learn from John's example here? Well, it's clear in verse 35 that John invested in others, right? So as he prepared the way of the Lord, he didn't do it alone. He grabbed others to come alongside him, inviting them to do the same. So bottom line is this. John's conviction about himself and his Savior compelled him to reproduce that same passion and vision in others. And so what we see flow from that reality is that John's investment in people wasn't to build his own following, but to lead them to Jesus. So what did John do when Jesus passed by? He said to those following him, Look, the Lamb of God. And what did they do? They got up and they left. I read an article several years ago 
about Pastor Oscar Murillo. And uh, Pastor Oscar is the leader of a massive uh, church planting movement in Nairobi, Kenya. And like John the Baptist, Pastor Murillo, he uh, has invested his life in making disciples and developing leaders. And something happened to him many years ago. After years of this commitment to disciple-making, he looked out at the congregation, just like I'm looking at you now, and he realized he had a huge problem. There were too many leaders. Okay, now this is a problem we'd all love to have. But he looked out, and after all the years, the commitment to disciple-making, he said, I have too many leaders. And seeing that, he knew that, some, that if something didn't happen, the limited opportunities for leadership would either lead to boredom or discontentedness. And, and he recognized in that moment that if I didn't do something, that it would either lead to division or, or to people just leaving the church. And so on that day, he, he says that he had a shift in how he viewed his life and his purpose. He believed that he was limiting God to doing only things in the walls of his church. And so within a short period of time from that revelation from the Lord, they planted five churches. And there's a fascinating rule that emerged in this church when it comes to eldership, okay? Those who are called in a pastoral sense to be leaders, that from that day forward, every elder would only serve two terms. In the first term, the elder would develop and exercise his leadership skills, okay? Learn what it means to exercise and lead. And in the second term, he would bring with him an apprentice who he would nurture as a replacement. By the time the third term began, many of those elders were released to start new works, to plant new churches. Recognizing that 65% of Nairobi lived in the slums, they made the commitment that for every church they planted in an educated, more well-to-do area, they would plant two churches in the slums. And in every one of those churches, they developed leadership internship programs. And this is just four years ago. In, in all of those churches connected to them, four years ago, they had 150 interns in training. Now, Oscar, he understands what it means to make and send disciples, doesn't he? He understands that it involves a commitment to the greater cause of the message of the gospel. He understands that it forces us to live our lives in such a way as to prioritize God's kingdom over our own. He understands that it involves us making a commitment to reproducing ourselves in the lives of others. So much so that, that a famous quote of Oscar's is this, I don't plant churches, I grow sons. Now, as an individual, what is keeping you from following the example of John the Baptist and following the example of Oscar Murillo? What is keeping you from reproducing your life in the life of another? 
This doesn't mean you have to be a preacher. It means if you have the gift of serving, who's serving alongside you? If you have the gift of leadership, who's leading beside you? Are we making disciples? Are we investing in others? And then the other question is this. As a community, what will it look like for you, the Bridge Church, to see that vision that is before you come to pass, that you would be part of a church-planting movement throughout western Wisconsin? Like John the Baptist, we've got to see that when Jesus is the center of everything, that self-concern and self-preservation and our own comfort, it's no longer the priority. That when Jesus is our treasure, our natural orientation becomes doing whatever we can to point more and more people to seek and to serve the Savior. There's a story that I once read about a young boy who was on an ancient sailing vessel. And this huge storm hit, and it began to toss the boat all over the place. And as the story goes, there wasn't one person who wasn't in fear of their life, with the exception of this little boy. This boy didn't appear frightened at all. And he he was almost amused. Now, when asked why he was so happy at such a time, he responded with these words. My father is the captain. He knows how to manage. You see, this little boy, he knew who he wasn't, and he knew who he was. And it changed how he lived. Now, as we consider the faith of John the Baptist, we see those same truths, right? We see that he knew who he was, he knew who his Savior was, and that it changed the direction of his life. And when we follow his example, we will become less driven by our pride and our need to control as we joyfully embrace the words, I am not the Christ. We will become less fearful of pouring out our lives in service. Why? Because Jesus is our king. He is our authority. He goes before us. We have nothing to fear. We'll become less afraid about multiplying ourselves and others, about multiplying ourselves as leaders, about multiplying ourselves as churches. Why? Because Jesus is the captain. If we trust him, then whatever storms come, whatever challenges are before us, whatever sacrifices we're invited to make, whatever control we're asked to release to him, we can joyfully find our rest in him. Because in the words of that little boy, he knows how to manage. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word from the book of John and in the example of John the Baptist. And Lord, this really isn't about just emulating John the Baptist. It's really about looking where John the Baptist looked for the ways in which we live. I don't claim to know 
how it is that you're speaking right now into the lives of those individually here or even into the future of the Bridge Church. But I do know that to love and prioritize you is to live a life that is risky and to live a life of releasing control. To, to seek and to say goodbye at times to good people. To dedicate all that we are, our resources, our talents, our treasures, to seeing the name of Jesus Christ and the fame and renown of Jesus to spread to the very ends of the earth, to every neighborhood in this area, to every city surrounding us, to every person that we know and meet. And we pray, Lord, that you'd embolden us to that task and give us the strength and guidance to do it in and through faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.